0: To read a poem should be an experience,
1: like experiencing an act. That the ascetic ideal has meant so much to man, however, is an expression of the basic fact of the human will, its horror vacui. It needs a goal, and it would rather will nothingness than not will. Am I understood? Have I been understood? Absolutely not, dear sir. Then let us start at the beginning.
0: I'm Michael Coyle professor of English at Colgate University and a
1: scholar of modernist poetry. And I'm Alan Swenson of the German department at Colgate University, and this is the sixth and final episode of our podcast series on transatlantic wisdom, sponsored by the America Centrum in Hamburg. Today, we're going to do something a
0: little different from what we've been doing. Today, We're going to explore what happens when an aphorism is inscribed into a longer form, built into a longer form. What happens when an aphorism doesn't
1: look like an aphorism? Part of what leads us to this is that Nietzsche insisted this was his his form of choice, the aphorism, and yet in the book that he's best known for, the genealogy of morality, the individual aphorisms don't look much like what we expect an aphorism to look like. They're long. They're half a page, sometimes two pages more. But he makes it clear in the preface, this is what he understands these to be. He says that if we find this text hard to read, it's because we don't know how to read aphorisms right. (laughs) That An aphorism honestly coined has to be interpreted, not just read through. And what we're taking as our point of departure today is the first aphorism of the third treatise, which he mentions in this preface. And he says of it that this treatise, the third treatise, is an example of how to read an aphorism, the aphorism in question being number one, and all of the remaining aphorisms are read attempts to get at and understand what this aphorism is presenting us with. I want to step back from that for a moment though. So first of all, Nietzsche is now violating at least one of the formal criteria of the aphorism by making them rather extended. But as was just mentioned, this is part of a book and One of the very interesting things that I think doesn't get enough attention is Nietzsche's own choices of genre terms. So the book as a whole, The Genealogy of Morality, he calls a polemic. That is, an aggressive attack on something. This aggressive attack is divided into a preface and three, in German uh, he calls them, Abhandlungen, which in uh, English would be translated as treatises. Interestingly enough, in looking at the other translations of genealogy into English, that term's always been translated as essay. And I think this is problematic because if we recall a, a, an aphorism that we have both quoted several times over the course of our series from Friedrich Schlegel, that it is for the spirit deadly, equally deadly to have a system or to have no system. So, it will have to determine to do both. Well, this term treatise that Nietzsche chooses for the main sections of the book, um, a treatise by dictionary definition is a formal and systematic treatment of a subject. So, here he's uh, going against the grain of aphorism and actually choosing a systematic form. And it's the first time And really the last time Nietzsche does this in his work, that his previous aphorisms, they're grouped thematically, but there is not a systematic attempt to get at a particular subject. Could I interject? Sure. Yeah. Well,
0: just I love the point that you're making, and it's so interesting. And again, Professor Swenson, it's a a point that wasn't available to me before your translation. So Nietzsche produces this book that puts into dynamic relation three different genres that don't pull in the same direction. So there, it seems to me that there's this this instability built into the book. It's a productive instability. I don't mean that the book doesn't work. But as you're pointing out now, treatise is a very different thing from a polemic,
1: and aphorisms are different from either of the above. And from essay, which is why I think it matters here to preserve... I think Nietzsche is trying to get at that very insight that Schlegel had in mind, that this is going to be both systematic and pulling against the systematic. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And he assures us of that by calling the whole a polemic, but also building these treatises up out of aphorisms. And in a way, that first passage uh, that I began with today um, shows you that informality of, of the writer doing what a formal writer is not going to do, um, asking the reader if, have I been understood? And the reader responding, absolutely not, dear sir. So we must start at the beginning. At least he imagines his
0: reader being polite when they push back, dear sir.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So to get into this, uh, this is going to take a little more reading than we have typically done in our podcast thus far, because we are now turning to the probably the pinnacle of Nietzsche's aphoristic work, and somewhat longer. And what he's dealing with here is a topic that concerned him greatly, in part from influence of both the time he lived in, but his great mentor Schopenhauer, who posited that in the sort of misery of life, the ultimate morality is a morality of selflessness. And Nietzsche was concerned that we take this as true too quickly. We don't examine it. We don't look at it. And this is what he means by then the ascetic ideal, is this ideal that self-denial, abstinence, poverty are the ideals that should mark a good life. And he wants to know what this means. So the title of the third treatise, this is the systematic study he's going to undertake. What do ascetic ideals mean? The ideals of a monk or of a nun. Mm-hmm. What do ascetic ideals mean? Among artists, nothing or too many different things. Among philosophers and scholars, something like a nose and instinct for the most favorable preconditions of higher spirituality. Among women, at best, one more charming trait of seduction, a little morbidezza on beautiful flesh, the angelicalness of a pretty fat animal. Among the physiologically failed and out of sorts, among the majority of mortals, an attempt to appear to oneself to be too good for this world, a holy form of excess, their principal instrument in the battle with slow pain and with boredom. Among priests, the true priest's faith, their best tool of power, also the most high permission to power. Among saints, finally, a pretext for hibernation, their novissima gloriae cupido, their rest in nothingness. God. Hmm. their form of madness. And here he concludes then with the passage I began with, that the ascetic ideal has meant so much to man, however. So it's meant a lot to various different groups, but that this ideal has meant so much to man is an expression of the basic fact of the human will. It's horror vacui, horror of the vacuum. It needs a goal. And it would rather will nothingness than not will. Am I understood? Have I been understood? Absolutely not, dear sir. Then let us start at the beginning. And what follows then the rest of the third treatise is his attempt to start at the beginning and to, as we would say now, unpack what he's done here in this this aphorism to unpack the aphorism. And the aphorism then
0: is, you know, toward the end of this this opening paragraph that, that you've read, an expression of the basic fact of the human will, its horror vacui. We would rather will nothingness than not will, right? That's, that's the aphorism. We would rather will, humankind would rather will nothingness than
1: not will, than not exercise our will at all. I always illustrate this to my students if they are having a hard time at least getting the basic idea that we, we would rather will nothingness than not will. When I was a kid, I liked playing checkers with my brother, but my brother had the nasty habit of uh, once he realized he had lost, uh, <laughs> throwing up the game board at that point <laughs> and not finishing it, uh, that we would rather will nothingness than keep playing the game when we know there's no chance of winning crucial thing here, and because of our time limits, we're obviously going to have to do a, an abbreviated ver- look at how Nietzsche then works through this aphorism in the course of following um, 60 pages. And this this, I remind you, he says, is his demonstration of what he considers a proper interpretation of an aphorism. He expects serious thought to be put into this, that there's serious thought was put into creating the aphorism and it's going to take it to get at the sense of it. Again, um, one of the things I want
0: to keep thinking about is how does the resonance of this, this astonishing aphorism really change by virtue of its being included in this longer form? Do the characteristics of the aphorism require a different kind of reading than reading a treatise? I think the answer to that is is obviously yes. But then how do they go together here in the hands of this master? Because in doing this kind of thing, Nietzsche changes forever the way that aphorisms work and basically prepares, I don't want to say prepares the ground because it I don't want to talk about foundations when we're talking about Nietzsche. But he um, he makes available a new range of possibilities for, in particular, poets in the, in the modern era.
1: Yes, and a big part of this, uh, we will have to jump around to get at this, but I think to pick up on what you're saying, the reason he wants to use this aphoristic form is it allows him to... Play stylistically, grammatically, build intentions in style, in grammar. So there will be places here where you come across sentences that don't seem appropriate in a treatise, where he is being irreverent, where he's drawing on popular culture, where, and then in the next line drawing on biblical literature, to get us to stop and recognize the kinds of bad habits we have in reading. And in thinking. So, for example, um, in the center of this, I think he gets at maybe what, what is the key philosophical concern in his attempt to understand this issue what do ascetic ideals mean? When he addresses the problem of pure knowledge, which he sees people aiming at in philosophy and, and, and thought generally, perhaps, that we want, to, we want to be objective. What he has to say about this, however, is this. For let us guard ourselves better from now on, gentlemen philosophers, against the dangerous old conceptual fabrication that posited a pure, willless, painless, timeless subject of knowledge, let us guard ourselves against the tentacles of such contradictory concepts <laughs> as pure reason, absolute spirituality, knowledge in itself. Here it is always demanded that we think an eye that cannot possibly be thought, an eye that must not have any direction in which the active and interpretive forces through which seeing first becomes seeing something are to be shut off or to be absent. Thus, what is demanded here is always an absurdity and non concept of an eye. So it sounds very good to us, this idea of being objective, of not not, uh, putting ourselves into the interpretation. Um, But I think he chooses the eye because it's very easy for us to see that that there is no eye that sees in every direction at once and not from a set perspective. That's the only perspective we have. So the solution here, if we want to understand what something means, and we can come back to this, I think it's important that he doesn't say at the beginning, what are ascetic ideals? He says, what do ascetic ideals mean? Mm -hmm. His conclusion here, there there is only a perspectival seeing, only a perspectival knowing. And the more affects the more emotions we allow to speak about a matter, the more eyes, different eyes, we know how to bring to bear on one and the same matter, that much more complete will our concept of this matter, our objectivity, be. Hmm. So if we go back to that open opening aphorism that this treatise is meant to interpret, I think he's giving us here both He's giving us here his system. The system is based then on, or its it's form is going to be, bringing together as many different perspectives on this particular matter, the ascetic ideal, as we can, which is exactly what the first treatise, the first aphorism does. What do ascetic ideals mean for artists? What do they mean for philosophers? What do they mean for women? Mm -hmm. What do they mean for priests? What do they mean for saints?
0: And um, do we want to quote Schlegel again?
1: (laughs) I've got it right here. Good. Let's see. (laughs) It is equally deadly for the spirit to have a system and to have none. It will thus have to resolve to combine both. The other thing I I, want to point out here, too, is in the end, I think part of what Nietzsche is saying here, too, is There isn't a thing called asceticism that can be known or defined, but rather there's a question of what it means. Because it is a human creation. It means something to us. It doesn't predate us. Although that is part of what he's trying to fight for here, is he's fighting against Mm -hmm. the notion that there is a preordained good, which would in fact allow us to create a system. If, If there is a clearly definable good in the universe, then that's the basis according to which we develop our system of morality. But the historical look, Nietzsche says, when he looks at this, and and we must remember he calls this a genealogy of morality, the historical look notices that actually what humans have valued over the course of our long history has changed, has evolved, shifted. So that whatever we want to claim about good, we have to look at how it got there. So the formal question then
0: for me, as is I, is I follow what you're saying, or as I think I follow what you're saying, a treatise represents a, a, a systematic kind of thinking. Does the aphorism contribute to that systematic thinking or does it pull against it? In other words, does the aphorism represent the other half of Schlegel's formulation,
1: I think that's a good question. I think that it does represent the other half of the question, that it is going to give us individual insights, like these perspectives he's talking about, that mm-hmm. the perspectives, no one of them in and of itself is adequate. I suspect, actually, that he gets to this. Uh, I don't know that we've mentioned this, but Nietzsche was not a philosopher by training. He was actually a classical philologist, a Greek and Latin scholar. This is just part of why I love him. And if we think in those terms about meaning, if you use a a Greek or Latin dictionary, you can't get abstract definitions of these words that people who study Greek and Latin, for them the word means the sum of remaining passages in which we find that word. So the word means what we use it to mean. And I think for Nietzsche, that's what meaning always is. It is – ascetic ideals mean what humans have used ascetic ideals for. And it is a process that is constantly evolving. So Mm -hmm. it will need different answers in different eras.
0: But the point that you're making, Alan, seems to me immediately applicable to what we're saying about form. What does it mean to write a treatise? Well, the, the rules of any genre change over time, right? Genres don't have essences. They basically represent bodies of common practice, you know, yeah. uh, bodies of period-specific expectations. So, what we see Nietzsche doing with all three of these these things, right? The idea of a polemic, a polemic can't be serious. It's it's a hot-headed, you know, argument for battle, right? And And you know the third treatise begins with with Nietzsche pulling an epigraph from one of his earlier books wisdom always loves only a warrior right and you know Nietzsche's reimagining what it means to write a treatise but from my point of view most interestingly he's reimagining what it what it means to produce an aphorism yeah so the whole of the third treatise I was I was basically just going to paraphrase part of what you were saying. The whole of the third treatise models a reader's response to the aphorism that concludes the opening paragraph of the treatise.
1: Yeah. And I think it, it, it's terribly important not to lose sight of what you just observed, that the aphorism is not the typical stuff of which treatises are made. And part of it is to get us to as I mentioned earlier, break bad habits, I'm convinced. One of those bad habits is of thinking that it's possible for humans, given our constitutions, to hmm. achieve pure knowledge. Another one of these, though, that I think is important and that comes through here, too, is hinted at in the preface to this, when Nietzsche first raises this question of the value of our Judeo-Christian morality that is so heavily rooted in asceticism, in an ascetic ideal, and simply noting that we take it for granted that this is good, and we don't examine it, we don't look at it. So he asks us then the question, what if the opposite were true? What if a symptom of regression also lay in the good? Likewise, a danger, a temptation, a poison, a narcotic through which perhaps the present we're living at the expense of the future, that we are certainly aware of that in our day and age, that uh, we may be leaving a less livable world to our posterity, Mm -hmm. perhaps more comfortably, less dangerously, but also in a reduced style on a lower level. So that precisely morality would be to blame if a highest power and splendor of the human type, in itself possible, were never attained. And I want to call attention to something very specific here, that we all learned in school, I'm sure, that we're not supposed to say a highest. It's the highest, uh, that superlatives, there can only be one. And Nietzsche wants you to stumble here, because he wants you to start looking at the bad habits of thought, of reading, that we often fall prey to that lead us to conclu- wrong conclusions. And the one he's getting at here, there could only be a single highest splendor of the human type if there were, in fact, a fixed and eternal goal. Right. But yeah. if we are living in a post-darwinian world now in which we know that humans evolve and that evolution takes place in response to changing conditions changing environments and that what survives and moves forward moves forward is what is best fit for those conditions then the possible highest splendors in the future are multiple <laughs> and we should keep that in mind we don't know what track our future genealogy is going to take us on.
0: Mm-hmm. Here's, here's Nietzsche responding again to, to Darwin. But Alan, this is uh, something that your translation picks up on. I remember the Kaufman. He doesn't say a, he says, he says the. But what I, I love about this point, again, a point I learned from you, is here's a very subtle example of how Nietzsche's book works as a polemic. But you know, usually polemics work in the form of you know, like big, broad, aggressive statements. This is very subtle, but if you recognize what he's done there—that substitution of the indefinite article—that's an—that's a—that's an argument,
1: as you've just explained. Mm-hmm. One of the other things that he brings out in in the leading up to the third treatise is another problem of language. So this gets back to your. Interest in form and genre that has to do with grammar itself. That English and most languages require us when we want to express an action, we have to express a subject who does the action. Mm -hmm. Grammar, the sentence requires a subject and a verb. But Nietzsche wants to insist that, in fact, there are many cases in which there is no doer, there is just a doing. That when lightning strikes, no one's doing it. It's an action and it has no doer. And I think he's on to something important here because it's a prejudice we have as humans. We want to think that we are rational beings and that we choose to live our lives the way we live our lives. But uh, even in recent psychology, there's more and more evidence that actually the degree to which reason rules what we do is far more limited than we like to think. (laughs) Um, And Nietzsche, I think, in a quite uncanny way, anticipates what he worries about in our day and age, a a growing sense of injustice, victimization, that's looking for someone to blame. Mm -hmm. And Virginia Woolf gets at this, too, just to hark back to last week's podcast. When she's talking about ways in which women have served to further men's life, she also adds, it was absurd to blame any class or any sex as a whole. Great bodies of people are never responsible for what they do. They are driven by instincts which are not within their control. In other words, we didn't end up with a patriarchal society because some men got together and planned it, that this is the result of the evolution of our species. And you only have to look at other species to find confirmation that as much as we wish we were different, our mating patterns, our behavioral patterns are not all that different. Forces beyond our control move us.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. In that passage you just read, she said any sex, right? And not Either mm-hmm. sex, and that's that adds a, a whole other dimension to to Wolf's comment. And again, the kind of subtlety that that we've been talking about here with Nietzsche, I, I love that moment, Alan. I'm glad you took us there.
1: So to come back to it, then this is—I I don't think we want to go into detail. I, 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 this, I think, might be a good place for us to transition to looking at Wallace Stevens as someone who picks this up. We could look in detail, but what we will find, I think, for our purposes we can summarize in the third treatise is it's going to look in detail at these groups that Nietzsche mentioned for whom the ascetic ideal has meant so much. He obviously has a conviction about one of them as a philosopher himself. He sees ascetic ideal as the philosophers like it because it gives them the ideal conditions for doing philosophy. They detach themselves from the drives and passions of the world. So they're being selfish and doing it. Mm -hmm. They use it for a certain reason. He's going to do that with artists, with the priest as well. Look at what it's meant in order to try and get an insight. And that insight is in a world where life is very hard and the majority of us, don't manage to achieve great power and fame, turning to the ascetic ideal, being proud that we renounce wealth, being proud that we renounce sex, being proud that we renounce pleasures uh, is a way of turning lemons into lemonade, I suppose, of trying to make (laughs) a bad situation that we can't change look like it's a good situation, that it might even get us into heaven.
0: Well, a big part of what I I find so exciting about reading Nietzsche, and I think this is one of the reasons why he was so profoundly influential on English and, and German poets in the 20th century, is this self-consciousness of form. He's thinking about the experience of readers. You know, When in literary studies, we talk about genre, we we often remark that if you change the way that people experience something, you change the thing. And I think that's what Stevens means in, you know, most of the time, in fact, almost all of Stevens' most powerful aphorisms appear in the context of poems. He did, nevertheless, maintain a notebook of, of aphorisms, aphorisms that That look like the kind of aphoristic statement that we ordinarily expect when we talk about the genre, you know, like the single sentence or two sentence you know resonant proposition, Stevens called this book Adagia, and you know our our listeners I'm sure know that's a a word from from music that that means uh, a movement that's performed slowly, and that's how these things are should be read so one of Stephen's adagia says that to read a poem should be an experience, like experiencing an act. Well, okay, the first part, that's already a really interesting idea, that a, you know, a poem is not a repository of, of some wonderful, radiant, prepackaged truth. It's an experience. But that, that simile that, that concludes the aphorism, like experiencing an act, tells us something more. I love that. Yes, it, and I think this is you know one of the ways in which we can see Stevens responding to Nietzsche because Nietzsche was very self-conscious of this, and you know very mindful in his in the constructions of of, of his books of what this is going to be like for readers. So when I'm I'm talking with my my students about one of Stevens' poems, or really any any poem. I urge them not to be in too great a hurry to explain away the mystery of the poem, to resolve all of the apparent contradictions, You know, to, to make everything stable again and comforting. We've got one meeting. Nietzsche's writing
1: doesn't encourage that,
0: and neither does, does Wallace Stevens.
1: If I could just interrupt for a moment, I think that's one of the things that strikes me as so... Akin to Nietzsche about Stevens is that this moment comes up again and again in his poetry, in his writings, that we are now living in a time, he is writing in a time when we no longer have a fixed ideal, a transcendent ideal. Yeah. Which would be exactly what stabilizes a morality that Nietzsche's talking about, or even a history of humanity, a history of I. There wouldn't be any need for a history of humanity if, in fact, we had a fixed nature and a fixed ideal. Yeah,
0: yeah. Well, uh, I was going to go to, to, to this, the, this um, poem, Fosper, reading by his own light. But what you've just said, Alan, Stevens has a moment where he says almost like, like, exactly what you just were, were explaining. He has a poem called Of Modern Poetry. You know, how meta is this, right? Wonderful poem. Here's how the poem begins, just the, the first six lines. Poem of the mind in the act of finding what will suffice it has not always had to find the scene was set it repeated what was in the script. then the theater was changed to something else. Its past was a souvenir, right its past was a souvenir, some worthless trinket just remind you of where you've been, right. The poem of the mind, the succession of prepositional phrases is, is itself kind of destabilizing, isn't it? The poem of the mind in the act of finding what will suffice, right? Suffice, like what will get the job done for now because we know this can't be a permanent achievement,
1: right? Yeah, those are the moments that I've, I have come to really love in Stephen's poetry. Me too, me too. So, the poem that I thought we'd
0: we'd pause over in in this final podcast in our series is a poem that that Stevens wrote in the middle of the Second World War, 1942, and it's called "Phosphor Reading by His Own Light." Phosphor is the the Greek figure for the morning star, meaning bringer bringer of light. Right, like, like Lucifer in, in uh Christian tradition. So here's the poem. And you'll as you listen, you know it's a series of short propositions, each of which seems simple enough. But as the, the poem develops, nothing is simple. And the poem is endlessly meta in that it's, it's talking about the very thing that we as readers are going through. It is difficult to read. The page is dark. Yet he knows what it is that he expects. The page is blank or a frame without a glass or a glass that is empty when he looks the greenness of night lies on the page and goes down deeply in the empty glass. Look, realist, not knowing what you expect, the green falls on you as you look, falls on and makes and gives even a speech, and you think that that is what you expect, that elemental parent, the green knight, teaching a fusky alphabet. And that's the poem. So the poem, here again, we're we're looking at a longer work that includes within it, actually, a, a succession of aphorisms, but Figuring out how these, these aphorisms work in the context of the poem means figuring out what this poem wants us to see, which means thinking about what it is that we're doing while we read the poem.
1: One thing I'd like to point out here, too, is that I think he chose Phosphor as the morning star or bringer of light rather than Lucifer. so as not to immediately fall into... The idea of evil, Um, and it is perhaps for for readers now for whom biblical and religious things may be very unfamiliar, needing of the kind of careful reading that Nietzsche talks about with his aphorisms, that this is an idea that comes from Gnostic Christianity, from the idea Mm. in early Christianity that maybe... Lucifer or Phosphor, or whatever one wants to call him, was a figure a bit like Prometheus in Greek mythology who stole fire from the gods and gave it to humans to help them. And yeah. that that's where this name, bringer of light, Lucifer or Phosphor comes, is that in fact, humanity needed to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil in order to actually become cognizant beings to, to live the life that we live. In order to become human. Yeah.
0: Right. So, also, we might remember long ago, 75 years ago, there was a professor at Cornell University in New York State who distinguished, famously distinguished between the poetry of the Enlightenment or the Renaissance and all the poetry that's followed since. And the distinction that he made is between the mirror and the lamp. Now, we have both those tropes in in this poem. But the idea of the mirror, right, the idea of mimesis comes from the ancients. And the idea was that that poetry or painting or any of the arts is there to imitate nature. The idea of the lamp, we and Blake, we talked about this moment in in one of our earlier podcasts. Blake proposes that where man is not, nature is barren. And he, he doesn't he doesn't mean by that, that, that somehow we plant all the trees or anything. What he means is nature's just what it is. It takes a human eye to look at it and think this is beautiful to bring beauty into being, right? Because it's, a, it's an entirely human construct, right? It's a human experience.
1: Brecht, Brecht wrote a wonderful short poem, the German poet Bertolt Brecht, a wonderful short poem that expresses that sentiment, the tiny house on the lake... Under trees, smoke is rising from the house. If the smoke were missing, how sad the lake, the trees, and the house would be. Oh, nice. That's perfect for this moment. Yeah. Yeah. So, Alan, let's just read this poem
0: together. Because I I know our our friends who are listening are are listening and won't necessarily have the text in front of us. So we'll just take this. the, The poem comprises... Six two-line stanzas, so we'll just do it one stanza at a time. And again, virtually every sentence in this poem is a simple proposition, like the opening one. It is difficult to read.
1: <laughs> I, uh, I, could, I perhaps would like to, to interject just that maybe we should say one thing about the poem as a whole before we read individual pieces because it might be harder Mm -hmm. to notice this. I think it's crucial. You pointed this out to me earlier when we were talking, and this is the kind of thing that matters in Nietzsche as well, to be very careful in your attention to even grammar. So, Phosphor reading by his own light might sound like this is a poem about Phosphor from beginning to end. Mm -hmm. But the first three stanzas are he, he, And then after we get look, realist, and then address to realist, it's you. Mm -hmm. So that, in fact, the first three stanzas are about one reader and the second three are about a different reader.
0: Yeah. At least that's
1: the way I read it. Well, there's a formal mark
0: of the break, right? There's an ellipsis, that, that most ambiguous of all punctuation marks, right? It means that we're in the same time, something's been left out, but also that what was left out doesn't matter. Well, we're going to get there, aren't we? So here we go, back to the beginning. It is difficult to read. The page is dark. That's two simple propositions in the first line of the poem. Is it difficult to read because the page is dark? Presumably. Yet he knows what it is that he expects. Now, that second line, Alan, in your reading, anticipates what's going to come in the second half of the poem, right? Despite the fact that he can't actually see what's on the page, the reader is confident that he or she knows what's going to be there, right? Yeah. The page is dark. Okay. Second stanza. The page is blank, or a frame without a glass, or a glass that is empty when he looks. So before the page was dark, but now it's blank. But then we get this characteristic Stevensian move where we get a succession of similes, each of which seems to replace the one before it, instead of building on it, right? And I think the ultimate suggestion is that all of these is just an approximation of an experience that we can't quite get into language. Is it that the page is blank, meaning there's nothing on it? Or is it that the page is a frame without a glass? So he's imagining A mirror where we still have the frame of the mirror, but the looking glass itself is absent. Or, the third simile, a glass that is empty when he looks. So maybe the mirror is complete, but when our reader looks into the mirror, the reader sees nothing. Where does this leave us? (laughs) Third stanza. And and just to say before we read it, in, in Stephen's poetry, the color green typically is a kind of stand-in for the, the fructivity of nature. The greenness of night lies on the page and goes down deeply in the empty glass. And that Sixth line is followed by the ellipsis that we were talking about before. The greenness of night. So the, the darkness is fruitful, right? But that problematic verb, it lies on the page. It lies on the page as in it's resting on the page or that it's deceptive. And goes down deeply in the empty glass. Well, you can't go deeply into a glass. It's all surface. And here's where the the poem makes its volt, as as we've been suggesting. Alan, you want to read the next one?
1: Sure. Look, realist, not knowing what to expect. The green falls on you as you look.
0: So, the first question is, as you've already suggested, Alan, is, is this realist the same as the reader that we began with? And you're reading it as being a different reader, because...
1: The realist doesn't know what he expects, uh, not knowing what you expect, whereas the first reader, he knows what it is that he expects.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: I, I see this as, a, as, as one of these moments, again, like the one in, of modern poetry where you can know what to expect on the page if there is a given ideal that you subscribe to.
0: If the scene is set and was repeating what was in the script, right, to go back to of modern poetry.
1: Yes, yes, exactly.
0: So then also here in the second half of the poem... The greenness of night was lying on the page for that first reader. But here, and there's a a really important enjambment here, right? That is, Mm -hmm. the eighth line of the, the poem ends with a comma and turns into the
1: first line of the next stanza. The punctuation is very important here. Yeah. Alan, to help people follow
0: us, would you start again with look and then just go to the period? sure
1: look realist not knowing what you expect the green falls on you as you look falls on and makes and gives even a speech <laughs> i i love that comma that comma after gives because the speech isn't necessarily important here but but here you have that fecundity that you were talking about of green the greenness of night Mm-hmm. that it makes and it gives yeah and it it, evo- and it evokes for me an idea i mean i i i'm a gardener but in other ways too almost every kind of germination of, of uh insemination fertilization whatever of the growing of things to, takes place in the dark seeds germinate underground
0: mhm 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 and i i i love too the the force of that word even falls yep. on and makes and gives even a speech. <laughs> and, you know, does that mean that the, the speech is it's not all that important, but look at all the crazy stuff that emerges from this, even language. Or is is this the ultimate achievement?
1: I, I think one can read it either way, but the, the crucial thing is to take both of them in a way separately. First, there is Just the making and the giving. This is productive. This is creative. And if we need to, we'll give an example that goes with gives or makes a speech. But the comma there keeps us from too quickly going to makes a speech or gives a speech. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. This is green light falling on us from the page as we read, we modern realists. I want to connect this, too, to the point that you were making earlier about that
0: wonderful moment in in Nietzsche where he talks about a highest splendor.
1: Yeah, abs- absolutely. What do you see there in that connection? I don't know what to expect uh, if I am this realist. So something will happen. It won't be carrying out a preconceived ideal, as in the case of Foster's reading.
0: As we read the poem in this way, Phosphor starts to seem something of a narcissist, doesn't he? That he looks around and, and never sees anything more than, than what he was expecting to see.
1: I, th- I think that he's, a, he's an interesting character, and, and maybe Stevens likes him because he's a necessary instigator of change in a sense, but still, Phosphor does come out of a tradition in which there is a belief in a a deity, a fixed order, but already a challenger to that fixed order.
0: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. A bringer
1: of light, but the light can be problematic, especially
0: because Mm. the darkness is so productive. So there are three lines remaining in this poem. It's one sentence, but it's another one of these sentences that delivers a series of substitutions. Well, here it is and you think that that is what you expect that elemental parent the green knight teaching a fusky alphabet fusky stevens loves these these unfamiliar archaic terms in part because they contribute to what is you know one of his fundamental poetic strategies, his and basically every other poet in the last 200 years, what academics call defamiliarization, right? That is to show us something that we think we already know, but somehow prompt us to see it like we've never seen it before, to see it again as though we were seeing it for the first time. So, fusky means, you know, dark. And this alphabet, this stuff that the poem is made of is the product of the night and not the product of
1: Phosphor's enlightenment. Here again, something you said earlier about form, I think, moves nicely along with this, that the first three stanzas are... Complete in themselves. Each stanza ends with a period. Mm-hmm. The last three stanzas, both of them carry over carry over into the next stanza. Nice. Yeah, that's a really nice point. So, form is more fluid here than it is in the first half. And thinking again in, in terms of form,
0: you know, as we, we talk about this together, we're we're sort of proposing a, a, a reading of this poem, but I, if our, our listeners are just nodding their, their heads, I'd like to think this is possible and saying, yeah, that makes sense. But, you know, the, the first experience of this poem is, is bewildering, and, and that, that sense of uncertainty is an important part of the experience of this poem. Like Nietzsche, I think one of Stephen's first moves in any of his his poems is to make us a little less sure that we know what things are all about, that we know
1: where we stand. I'm glad you made that point, that I, I do think there's a danger, you and I feel it as we read this, that we're coming to too much of a conclusion, and I don't think it has to be that way. When I read this through, there are still many facets of this that I can't make sense of, I suppose. But I start to notice things, and this is, I think, very much like reading a Nietzschean aphorism. I start to notice that the first three stanzas are different than the second three, both in that the first three have he reading and the second three you, Mm -hmm. and the first three have a different structure the sentence structure or stanza structure than the second three, that the verbs in the first one are more passive than they are in the second three. Um, and it gives me a sense that as with the aphorism, that I am working my way towards an understanding. Yeah. But that it matters terribly that I not flatten what's left, what I haven't what I haven't been able to make sense of. In fact, I'd like to suggest that
0: The title of this poem makes everything problematic all over again. Is this poem about Phosphor? Is Phosphor the figure of those first three stanzas, you know, illuminating the darkness? Or is Phosphor the the speaking voice in this poem? In which case, we have to rethink all over again the relation between the two parts of the poem. It, it just yeah, good point. the important part here isn't so much about whatever I might decide in in conclusion, as the the relation between reader and text that the aphorism structures. It's it's not about certainty. It's about dynamic experience, and
1: it's about thinking. Aha! I've caught you. <laughs> I think we've come around to a similar point here, Michael. That um, <laughs> what. <laughs> what's going on in the poetry here is about knowing something and i guess i would say even with stevens yes what he wants us what what i feel like i find in reading stevens is i come face to face with the condition of living in this era when we begin to understand we don't have an ideal pinning everything down for us mm-hmm. but that it's equally deadly to live without a system or with a system so you have to learn to live a balancing act and mm-hmm. reading any of his poems is like that but i think that is in fact is an insight he wants us to come to the the realities of the modern realist you
0: know one of the the dominant currents in german intellectual history is is the the project of hermeneutics right which is way beyond what we can really talk about in the few minutes that we've got left here. But basically, it's about relating parts to wholes. And it emerges from the study of, of the Bible in the, the Middle Ages. How do we understand the point of the, the meaning of any individual verse? Well, you understand it in terms of its relation to the whole of revealed Scripture. Well, how how do we know what that is? Oh, well, by, by reading through the individual verses. And I think what we get in in Wallace Stevens is a a really playful self-consciousness of of this, and he celebrates it. I mean, for for Stevens, this isn't some tragedy that we have to endure. This is an enormous opportunity and a a way to celebrate the the endless powers of human creativity. Well put. And that might be a a good way for us to, to conclude this little series, but I've had so much fun doing this, and I, I find reading modern literature through this Nietzschean lens, well, really exciting, because it it, it helps me see how much of this literature works in ways I, I wouldn't have been able to, to see otherwise.
1: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I hope that uh, our listeners have been able to be patient with us today in this last episode, because... Um, It was leading up to what I think certainly Stevens and Nietzsche both lead up to, which is the aphorism leading ultimately through accumulation to an understanding of bigger things, but an understanding that isn't flattened or simplified. But it has meant us reading some long passages today, which isn't always easy. (laughs)
0: Hey, thanks again to the TransAtlanticist for giving us the the platform to, to enable this play. And thanks to our producer,
1: Andrew Sola. Yes, thank you. so you know, once again, the views and opinions expressed on the show are those of the guests or the host, not the American Centrum, which does not take any institutional positions on politics or policy. Thanks again for listening.